0: Welcome to a new podcast on physics and engineering in medicine. I'm Gemma Bale and I'm here with Jamie Guggenheim. In this podcast, we'll be introducing our researchers and giving a sense of what it means to work in the medical physics department. Each episode, we'll chat science and life with a different researcher. And this week, we're talking to Adam Gibson, professor in the Biomedical Optics Research Lab. Enjoy. I'm Gemma Bale, I'm a Medical Physicist in the Biomedical Optics Lab at UCL.
1: Yeah, and I'm Jamie Guggenheim and I'm also a Research Fellow here at UCL Medical Physics, again working in the Optics Group.
0: Today's guest is Professor Adam Gibson. Could you just introduce yourself and tell us one thing you love about medical physics and biomedical engineering?
2: Yes, yeah, I'm Adam Gibson, I'm also in the Biomedical Optics Lab and have been for longer than I care to remember. I suppose the thing I like about my job most is its its variety, both in terms of the kinds of science you can do from acquiring data and doing the experimental stuff right through to the analysis, the range of people you meet, and the range of problems that you get set and asked to solve.
0: So this week you tweeted about some medical physics in the news.
2: Yeah, it was a. An odd little article that somebody else tweeted, it had hit the BBC news and it was about a woman who had gone to some science fair in Scotland, I think, who had had thermal imaging done and this thermal imaging camera had identified her breast cancer, which she was previously unaware of. And this was getting quite a lot of interest on BBC News, and some people were tweeting, Why don't we do this instead of x ray mammography? Mm. Um, why isn't this available on the NHS? Mm. So I, I put in my two penneth, which was trying to, if anything, calm it down a little bit and um, say that this probably isn't the solution to imaging breast cancer for all people.
1: How, well, how does thermography work? What's
2: going on, I suppose, yeah, so... Yeah. Everything that's around room temperature emits radiation, emits infrared radiation, doesn't mm. it? So you and I, this table, we all emit infrared radiation. Your coffee cup will emit infrared radiation at a different wavelength from the table because, because it's warmer. Yeah. If you've got a uh, part of the body which is warmer, mm. then what you'll see is, is a different wavelength being emitted which is like saying you in a different colour if, if infrared light has a colour. Hmm. So you've got longer wavelengths being emitted if, the, if it gets warmer. I mean, tumours are fast-growing tissues, and because they grow fast, they need a lot of energy. If they need energy, they need to have their own blood supply, and one thing that makes a tumour into a tumour is its ability to send out chemicals that say, hey, I need a blood supply, come and grow blood here. So you actually get extra blood growing around tumours. That blood comes from deep within the body and if you've got a tumour like this one on the surface, mm-hmm. you are bringing warm blood from deep to the surface and it looks like a warm spot on the skin. So you can diagnose some kind of tumours because it's warmer than surrounding mm-hmm. tissue. The main way that breast cancer is screened for is with mammography, which is the best of a rotten group of screening mm-hmm. methods. It's you know it's the best we've got, but it's not that good. Mm. So there's a lot of effort being put into finding better solutions to breast screening. Mm. The advantage of X-ray mammography is you get very fine spatial resolution, which basically means you can see small things. And you get something called microcalcifications, which are almost like tiny little bits of grit growing in the in the breast, and they're indicative that a tumour might soon grow. So if you can spot these calcifications, Mm. Mm. you can get in there before it becomes a tumour, and that's a a jolly good thing.
0: Whereas the thermography would be going to a later stage of the cancer. Thermography will
2: only ever spot Mm. later stages, Mm. yeah. Mm. But, you know, the X-ray mammography's got disadvantages. It uses X-rays, which people don't like, and you've got to compress the breast. I've put my hand in one of these mammography units and it, it gives it a really good squeeze and I wouldn't want to put any more delicate bits of my body into a, um, to a mammography system. Keep it, keep it clean, professors. Keep it clean, keep <laughs> it clean. So if you can replace extra mammography with something which is at least as good and less painful, then we mm. should do that. I don't think mammography is going to be that solution.
1: Well, that, that argument that it shows, shows it too late seems to be quite a good one
0: Mm. because there's a difference between being able to detect something and being able to usefully detect something when you can intervene
2: yeah i mean in this i mean you've only got the bbc news report to go on 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 this case but it looks like they have intervened early enough to be able to stop it spreading Mm. elsewhere Mm. which is a jolly good result Mm. but um you know you you can't change a screening program based on one one example Mm. and uh, there's certainly not enough detail in this report to be able to say anything Deep about it, other than clearly in this case it's worked, but the evidence says in many other cases it probably won't. I guess a
0: cheaper way would just be to send everyone to the museum and get them to (laughs) (laughs) check themselves, but then we're almost in like vigilante medicine. (laughs) Yeah,
2: one thing you can't do as a medical physicist ever really is comment on an individual medical case yeah you know, absolutely. a medical physicist is absolutely not a medical doctor you yeah. cannot go around diagnosing cancer mm. but um a medical physicist probably should have the ability to have a, a view of the different kinds of imaging that's available and kind of benefits and disadvantages of each and and um
0: and i think just in general knowing that uh n of one so having one case Um, study isn't going to impact, going to change policy, like knowing that you need to have a bigger sample.
2: Yes, and one nice thing about this example is you've got an N N of two, because there's two breasts here, (laughs) and one's got cancer and one hasn't, and it's always much easier to do diagnosis from imaging if if you can compare one Mm. site to the other, or normal to abnormal, or whatever. So that is an advantage of thermography, provided that you've not got two tumours, one in each breast which is symmetrical, which would be really unfortunate.
0: Mm.
1: I know you introduced yourself, you know, I'm Adam and this is why I like my job, but in more current terms, who who are you, what do you work on?
2: What do I want to be when I grow up? (laughs) What, What are you now? I guess my journey into medical physics, if you will, probably started off at A level. When I was choosing where to go for it, to university, I knew I wanted to do physics, and my physics teacher said, don't just do physics, do physics with something, hmm. because then you've got a bit of a, something that differentiates you from all the other physics graduates. Hmm. So I had a look through the, through the handbook, and I looked at medical physics, and I think probably that handbook was the first time I saw medical physics existed, and I thought it looked quite interesting. So I applied to universities that offered medical physics and ended up studying medical physics in Cardiff. I did my master's project, which is ultrasound, and found out that the research was the bit I enjoyed most. So then I uh, started looking for a PhD place, found one at UCL in the physiology department, Mm. started doing a PhD here, and then after that transferred across into the medical physics department, and that was about 20 years ago.
1: So what was the topic of your PhD?
2: It was electrical impedance tomography. Well, I I suppose that actually a little bit like what we were talking about before, the the thermography. If you've got a tumour growing, or you've got some kind of activity which needs energy, then you get blood being sent to that region. Mm. And the same way that blood brings heat with it, blood is also mainly liquid, Mm -hmm. whereas tissues are mainly cells. So if you flow an electric current through blood, it travels more easily than it does through cells, so the resistance of blood is lower. So if you can apply an electric current to the body and measure the voltages, you can basically measure impedance, resistance, over and over again from looking at it from lots of different angles. And if you look at it from enough different angles, you can work out where the increase or decrease in resistance must have been in order to give you that pattern of voltages on the, on the skin surface. So most people were looking at it, have been looking at it for things like imaging the abdomen or the lung. Obviously when you breathe, you've got a big change in resistance. Mm. Because air displaces tissue. Uh, we we were using it for looking at the brain. So putting electrodes on the scalp, firing in current, measuring voltages, and then looking at, in my case, it was mainly um, evoked activity. So that's if if you get the patient to think about something or move their arm or, or something like that, you mm. look at, um, how much blood is being sent to the part of the brain that deals with thinking, or I'm, I'm moving, or whatever.
1: Can you assume that the, the current travels in a straight line, or what do you have to The current
2: very that? much doesn't travel in a straight line. Yeah. Um, it basically travels in a very fuzzy way throughout the whole brain, which is well, the whole body, which is why you get really fuzzy images.
1: Mm. Mm. So do you have to really understand that on an individual basis? Do you have to build a model of that?
2: Yeah, you, you, you need to work out the physics, of how current travels through the body, write down the maths of how current travels through the body, and then solve it for the the head that you're dealing with.
1: For that particular head. Yeah. Right.
2: Yeah.
0: And you said you were firing in current. Now that doesn't sound super safe to me. It
1: conjures sort of Frankenstein it does. images.
0: Yeah,
2: maybe that might have been the wrong uh, wrong phrase to use. Maybe we were carefully applying <laughs> currents in a controlled way yeah, to d- the Delicately
1: head. just stroking a little current. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, just gently and, and pleasantly. Yeah. So, well, but this does raise an interesting question, which is how much current can you safely put? In, well, for current it's
2: quite an easy one, actually, because the way yeah. it's going to affect the body is by triggering nerves.
1: Mm. Mm. If
2: it triggers nerves, you can feel it.
1: Mm.
2: So we can kind of assume that if you're not triggering nerves, you can't feel it, so it's safe right and that's probably not a bad assumption i mean the the, the um legislation is written a little, a little bit more precisely than than that mm. but um and, you know if you if you lick a battery or something you can taste the electric current so if you're applying electricity to the scalp and you're, you're not feeling any activity in your scalp then by the time that current's got through the skull into the brain it's yes, yes. even lower yeah so it's it's even lower than not not showing you any effect. If you turn up a little bit too high, you do feel it, you and do. then you turn it back down again. Right. Yeah.
1: Good indicator. Yeah. So have you had this procedure done to yourself? Is oh
2: it- yeah, I've been experimented on by all kinds of things. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I've got one of the most experimented upon brains in London, probably.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, hasn't done you any harm, has
2: it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you said that. <laughs> so yeah, that was my PhD. And then after that, I joined the optics department and basically did the same thing, but instead of using electricity, using light. Using a similar kind of infrared light to what we're talking about with, with mammography. But rather than waiting for a tumour to grow and for the blood to get warm, what we do is we put infrared light in and measure where it comes out. And then the infrared light travels round, round the body in the same kind of chaotic way that electric current does. giving you a really blurry image. But the idea is that the part of the body that absorbs infrared light the most is the blood. So if you've got a map of where the light's been absorbed, then you've got a map of where where the blood is. Mm, And it's better than that because blood comes in two colours, depending on whether it's got oxygen in it or not. So if you use two different colours of infrared light, you can work out where the blood is and how much oxygen it's carrying.
1: So it's slightly eye-opening to me the first time I ever saw it, but you can actually get light a long way through human tissue, can't you?
2: Yeah, we had a project doing infrared mammography. We had a this is a device for imaging breast cancer much deeper than you can get with surface thermography. We had a table with a with a hole drilled in it, and we had a hemisphere, hemispherical cup bolted to the underside of this table, and the woman would lie down with her breast in this hemispherical cup. And I think it was we had one which was about twelve centimetres across, hmm. and you can put light in and measure light coming out of the other side 12 centimetres away. That's incredible. And that works because the breast has got relatively little blood in it compared to other organs. Mm. Mm. Um, The brain has got a lot more blood in it compared to other organs, so we can only get through about 8 centimetres of brain, which is about the same as a term baby. So you can just about image across the baby's brain Mm. at term, but once you've got a couple of weeks old you can't get light through it anymore. Mm.
0: And why why are you shining the light into the baby's brains? What do you want to find out about the babies?
2: Mixture again looking for brain activity still my favorite experiment is where we had a baby lying down and we moved their arm baby baby was asleep we move their arm and as you move their arm you can see the bit of the brain that deals with movement being active and then you move the other arm and you see the bit of the brain on the other side that deals with movement mm-hmm. being being active and you can reconstruct these images and and identify the parts of the brain that deals with movement and that's really good that's really cool. but then moving on you can also use use it to look for things like stroke which is where you've got a bleed in the brain and things like epilepsy where mm. it looks like it's similar to the brain being active but it's hyperactive so you get more blood
0: cool and this technique's called optical tomography
2: yeah diffuse optical tomography optical tomography it's got a few names
0: cool. Normally when you think about brain imaging, you think about MRI scanning. Mm. What are the differences and the advantages of the optical tomography?
2: Well, MRI is when you put the patient in a very expensive scanner that sets up a really strong magnetic field and gets all your protons doing weird things. And if you if you if you measure the um, the signal that the protons give off when they're doing weird things, you can work out where the protons are and how they're behaving, and that can give you information about the structure of the head. Mm. I reckon most of medical physics is pretty easy for most physicists to understand, with the exception of MRI, mm. which is stunningly difficult. And mm. if you want to know about that, you need another podcast and speak to someone who <laughs> knows about this <laughs> stuff and not me. But um, if I want to annoy an MRI physicist, I get one of their beautiful images that they're very, very proud of that shows the internal structure of the brain with exquisite resolution, and ask them whether the patient was dead or alive. Because you can, you can't, you can often not tell, oh. right? So what that... What, MRI gives you is a really, really, really good measure of the structure of the head. Mm. So it'll tell you if there's anything in the wrong place, you know, if you've got a tumour or if you've got a broken bone. It will give you the structure of the brain perfectly, perfectly well. But it won't tell you how the brain's working. And the brain is just a bag of cells. You need to know it's working in order to find out what's actually wrong with it. And you can use MRI to give you that information if you you adjust it and use what's called functional MRI. But you can also use these optical methods to tell you what the brain's doing. The functional methods, whether it's functional MRI or optics or various others, tend to not give you good resolution. So what happens is you know that something's happening, but you don't know quite where. If you use the anatomical method, you know where it is, but you don't know what's, what's happening. Mm-hmm. So to get the full picture and work out what's happening to the brain and where, you need multimodal imaging. You, mm-hmm. need, to, you need to combine functional MRI with, with anatomical MRI, or you need to combine diffuse optical imaging with anatomical MRI or with X-ray CT or something like that. That's probably one of the, one of the areas of medical physics that's at the forefront of research now, which is combining different imaging techniques together to give you more information than you get from using either one alone.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah photoacoustic imaging, the thing that I work on most closely is, is a hybrid imaging technique that involves using light, which could be visible light or an infrared light, you put that into the body in such a way as to generate ultrasound, so ultrasound which you commonly see for scanning babies for example. In, in a standard mode you're throwing ultrasound into the body and measuring its reflections, you can actually generate ultrasound inside the body using light as the stimulating thing. Light in, sound out. Light in, sound out, exactly. Um, I'm sure we'll have more to, more to come on that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So one project you did work on, Adam, and it probably goes down in history as, so far, the best acronym at UCL. Uh, was the MONSTER project, <laughs> is that right? Yes. MONSTER, was that, uh, and presumably that acronym came out organically. <laughs> I
2: Could think you, the acronym, came first. If and you're not involved
0: in that acronym creation, then I will eat Jamie's hat or something. No, it was
2: before my time. No way. It was before my time. For,
1: yeah. for the audience Gemma's tucking into my hat. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so
1: could yeah. you tell us about the Monster project?
2: That's pretty much the stuff I've been talking about actually. You've just put an end to it. So we've got this system that's kind of about as big as a fridge freezer. Yeah. And it's got a it's got a laser in the top, and the laser in, in this particular generation of the system the laser creates white light mm. which then we can put through a filter effectively and choose what colors of light we want to come out of this laser
1: so you've effectively got a laser at any color you like. either laser
2: you've a wavelength tunable laser mm. yeah mm. so we choose typically four different wavelengths mm. that are kind of red through to infrared you You can't quite see them with the naked eye. Interestingly, you can see them with your mobile phone camera, Mm. but you can't see them with the naked eye. Your mobile phone camera is slightly sensitive in the infrared.
1: Does that depend on the phone, or is that?
2: No, it depends. It's a silicon sensor. All, pretty much all mobile phone cameras have a a sensitive to the infrared.
1: Mm. I thought they put a low-pass filter on some.
2: They do on SLR, kind of proper, Mm. Cameras. I don't think they do on the uh, mobile phone. They might do on posh ones.
1: I've, I've, in my, when I was doing, back when I was doing my PhD, we wanted to detect the infrared light for a student project using webcam. Yeah. And, uh, we had to carve out the, yeah. uh, the um. low pass filter that was stopping it being sensitive to the infrared. Yeah. You, you can you can Google webcam astronomy, and a lot of people take these filters out to look okay. at to look yeah. at the sky. Yeah, mm.
2: uh, yeah. You can test it if you. This is this is an activity for listeners at home. <laughs> 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 take your television remote remote. Control. Uh, yeah, it at your camera.
1: Oh, I am going to try this.
2: Yeah, and fire your remote control at your mobile phone camera, and you'll probably see a little flashing light coming out at mm. the end of your of your um, mobile phone camera uh, of, of your tele remote. Can we do it?
1: Oh, we could actually do it right now. We've it's not really, really good on the podcast, podcast <laughs> yeah. material, is it? It's all right. Well, well, we'll we. Well, there's yours at home. Jamie
2: is taking a video. So I'm looking of Gemma's phone mobile, camera. Gemma's.
1: Gemma's, um, Gemma's pressing the... her thing and, and we're calling Adam's bluff because I can't see anything oh, whatsoever. Oh no, oh, no. It. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, wow I actually so, can yeah. I actually
0: can I see. see it. Hold yeah, it down. It. If you oh, hold yeah. it, does it. There we Yay. go. Yay! Oh, you cool. see? <laughs> wow.
1: That's rather that's good. That's cool, isn't it? And presumably we could put this up to a baby's brain and we see it come out the other side. Is that right, Adam?
2: Yeah. <laughs> 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 Have I oversimplified that? That might be oversimplified.
1: So, so we were talking about monster, weren't we? Yeah. So we've got this. We've got
2: this laser that produces white light. We can filter it and produce four different colours. Four different of colours light, of laser light. Of laser light. Now these laser light colours are all pulsed.
1: Yeah.
2: And each one is—I forget the numbers. It's something like ten picoseconds.
1: What's a picosecond?
2: Well, a picosecond is a. Uh, 10 to the minus 12th, so it's a million millionth of a second. Yeah. Uh, so very short. So the idea is you put in a lot of light in a very short time. An
1: extremely short time. Yeah.
2: This light travels along an optical fiber, which connects onto the head, the body, our ah, So that's you want the way of getting it. the laser light. You get the laser light the into the, into the body using at a, an at optical a fiber in a, yeah. in a precise yeah. position. And then you have a load of other connectors with optical fibers mm. that lead back to detectors. Mm. Now these detectors are called photomultiplier tubes. Mm. And what they do is they identify the time at which a photon is
1: measured. A photon.
2: Yeah, so you put in a, as much light as you're allowed to do in a short period of time at one side. Yeah. This, this light travels willy-nilly all the way through the head. It diffuses in a blurry way through the head. And then you measure a photon.
1: So you, you, put, you put a finite number of photons in as many as you can, and on the other side of a, of a baby's head, you can detect individual photons that yeah. come through. Now that's cool physics, it isn't is it? It its quite cool physics, yeah. I can yeah. see why you're interested in this. Yeah.
2: Story. And the reason we want to know about the time it takes to get across the head mm. as well, because by measuring the photon, we get a measure of intensity, because the number of photons is the intensity.
1: How much light went through. How much light went through. Mm.
2: Mm. And, by, and we also know the time taken for light to travel through. Now, Why do we need to know those two different things? The reason we need to know those two different things is that there's two different ways that light interacts with tissue. Mm. It can scatter, which means it comes in in one direction and then it bounces off something and goes off in a different direction. Mm. Or it can be absorbed, which means it goes in and then it just gets turned into heat. Mm. So if it's scattered, it comes out. Mm. If if it's absorbed, you lose it, it it doesn't come out. Mm. But you remember from your GCSE physics, but if you want to measure two things you need two equations mm. so to measure absorption and scatter we need intensity and time taken mm. to get mm. through the head
1: so it's something that scatters a lot but still makes it to your detector it's gonna take a longer time to get there because it's that, gone over a yeah, weaving path that's exactly
2: it yeah so we use we have 32 connectors so roughly speaking we have 32 points at which we put light in and 32 points at which we measure light so we get thousand and twenty four measurements 32 times 32 measurements. And yeah. uh, then you need a big computer program to work out what the optical properties of the head must have been to generate those measurements.
1: Right, so you're able to then reconstruct a 3D picture of the whole head yeah. with, with what the light did. That's
2: the idea, yeah. Yeah.
1: Very cool. Yeah.
0: So what, one question I have is, so is, uh, this technology, this optical tomography, Do the doctors approach you and say, we need to know more about the the newborn baby's brains, or do you go to the doctors and do you say, we've got this kit that can measure this thing? Are you interested? How does that work?
2: I think that's one of the most interesting and enjoyable parts of the job, really, which is that you need to have that conversation and that collaboration going. It's never just one request. It's always an ongoing conversation between you and the the doctor and um, the that relationship is very important you know they probably won't know what the what the technique can do Mm. and we probably don't know what the clinical problems that need solving are Mm. and even at the end of the conversation I won't know as much about the clinical problems as the doctors will, and they are what know as much about the instrument and the technique as I will. So you really need to have that conversation to work together so that you both understand what the best way to use the system in that particular condition is. Mm-hmm. And that might change over time as either the clinical needs change or the instrumentation changes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's that ongoing conversation and collaboration which is, which is, can be very rewarding.
0: The Monster product still ongoing. they still, still monitoring babies. still ongoing but you've recently branched away from babies and into heritage
2: yeah how, how did that happen well it's applying science to understanding our heritage so we've got people um you know studying stonehenge um we've got people doing um crowdsourcing images mm-hmm. from remote sites in scotland and then collecting the pictures off twitter to analyze them to look for things like litter or whether these these uh, remote sites are starting to deteriorate, you don't need somebody there on the ground to check them, you can use crowdsourcing, Without somebody looking at the smell of books, look at that, whether that's linked to degradation or any conservation issues or anything like that. So yeah, in the same way that medical physics is applying physics and engineering to medicine, heritage science is applying science, whether it's physics, engineering, chemistry, biology, to Heritage.
1: And that that's anything from history that has to do with humans, is it?
2: Yeah, I think so. Yeah.
1: Objects of significance.
2: I mean some people would include paleontology in mm. there, some people don't. So it's still it's still a term which is being defined and it's defined differently in different places. Some ten years ago now, I suppose, I had a research grant that gave me some flexible funding so that I could look at how optical imaging could be used in other areas of medicine and beyond medicine into other areas and one of the areas we started looking at was um, heritage. So we got a PhD student and he um, built a multispectral imaging system with a camera, different filters, illuminating the object with white light and then we're putting filters on the camera to only let certain light come through.
0: Like- Coloured slides. Coloured
2: slides, basically, yeah. And um, he got a really big legal document that was about 200 years old that was being thrown away by some legal firm because they didn't need it anymore. It was written on parchment and because it had never been into a museum, it didn't have any historical interest or historical significance, he chopped it up into little pieces. And the reason for doing that is to use what we consider to be a medical physics technique in the area of heritage. And that medical physics technique is the idea of using a test surrogate, what we might call a test phantom. So if you want to test a medical imaging system, typically you create something with known properties and then image it and Mm -hmm. see whether you recover the properties that you know to be true. So what he did was he chopped this legal document into squares and imaged each square so he knew what it looked like and then damaged each square Mm -hmm. in a way that was relevant to the archive, so either, you know, Spilling ink on it or heating it or wetting it or various, you know, he had about 12 different ways that he damaged this thing. And then, so then he was able to image it before and after damage and look at whether the multispectral imaging and the post processing was able to recover mm. the writing which had faded because of the damage.
0: So you're shining different colours of light onto the parchment, and what do the different colours of light give you?
2: And different inks. Sometimes you can see if writing has been scribbled, scribbled out overwritten, you might see something's been erased, sometimes you can see stuff that's been, where paper's been reused, or mm. parchment has been reused in a different way. And then there's sometimes questions to do with um, conservation as well, you know, what's the status of the paper at the moment, um, Count what can we do with it, what mm. can not we do with it, how best to preserve it, stuff like that.
0: Cool, and this has led you into some really exciting projects, so I know you've worked on some Leonardo da Vinci yeah. materials.
2: Yeah, we got a collaborator brought some um, drawings by Leonardo da Vinci to our lab from the, from the Royal Collection, which we imaged, and we saw some underdrawings, so, so some like initial sketches that then he went over. Oh. We saw some stuff that is only visible in the ultraviolet and not in the visible, and uh, some of those made, it, made their way into a, a really nice book that was produced to go with the 500th anniversary of Leonardo's death. Oh. And a few weeks ago, I visited a Leonardo exhibition in the Louvre and they had one of the drawings there that we imaged. Wow. Which is very nice. Yeah.
1: Mm.
2: So that was, you know, it's, it's been a really nice opportunity to uh, image some, some really cool stuff.
0: Yeah. And I saw um, there was a lot of media coverage a couple of years ago about your work, and I think, I believe you brought mummies back from the dead.
2: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Freedom of the press. Yeah. Um, yeah, not all the press reports were completely accurate. <laughs> There's a, a coffin in a castle in Kent, Chiddingston Castle, and this coffin at one point in the distant past did contain a mummy but doesn't anymore. Okay. But it does have hieroglyphs that you can read going down the middle of the coffin, but which fade before it tells you the guy's name right. who, who was who was buried there. A couple of my collaborators went and took and took our multispectral imaging kit and imaged the, the bit where it was faded. The story was they didn't see anything. And then Keris Jones, who was a PhD student, was in the pub in the evening and uh, remembered over a pint of Guinness that there's a dye called Egyptian blue, which if you illuminate it in the green, it fluoresces in the infrared. So she did this, shone green light on it, and then had a filter on the camera that excluded the green light but only let infrared through. And this revealed the hieroglyphs that gave the guy's name. The guy was called Irathorou, which sounds really grand, but it's basically the most common ancient egyptian man's name so it didn't really tell us much about who it was but it was still it's a nice story for and i think they've included it into their exhibition in the in the castle and and uh, yeah it was a, it, it was a it was a nice one that one
1: who'd have thought that a career in medical physics would take you there
2: well i didn't but i'm glad it has hmm.
1: thanks
0: to professor gibson for sharing his research and career with us
1: this was a University College London podcast presented by Gemma Bale with myself, Jamie Guggenheim. It was produced by Billy Dennis with music from Kevin MacLeod. If you like this podcast, please do share it. Gemma and I will be chatting with a new researcher at the end of each month, covering a different area of medical physics and biomedical engineering.
0: If you're interested in studying with us at UCL, please visit our department website at www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash medical hyphen physics hyphen biomedical hyphen engineering we have undergraduate and master's courses including studying by distance learning and phd vacancies which can be found at various times throughout the year you might also consider following the department on twitter at UCL uclmedphys which is at uclmedphys bye for now
1: see ya